It is now clear that Mr Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. This is part of a group of nerve agents known as Novichok. Based on the positive identification of this chemical agent by world-leading experts at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory at Porton Down, our knowledge that Russia has previously produced this agent and would still be capable of doing so, Russia's record of conducting state-sponsored assassinations, and our assessment that Russia views some defectors as legitimate targets for assassinations, the government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. Uh, so, Carl, it's great to have you on the, the show today. Hi, Brett. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller, so it's good to be on. <laughs> so why don't you start first by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you've ended up looking at CBW stuff, uh, and then a little bit about how you got into this specific topic we're talking about today. Thanks, Brett. In a previous role, I used to be one of the CBON analysts at Jane's. For those of you who don't know it, it's a publisher on defence and intelligence security matters. But really, it was when I was doing my master's at King's, when I was looking at the use of chemical weapons in Syria. I started thinking about why um, states and people use chemical weapons, which took me on to Russia's use of poisons and um, how it takes care with some of its dissidents. So, yeah, I really got intrigued by the question of why why Russia keeps poisoning people. But given that Russian leaders have lots of different ways of silencing critics, whether that's false imprisonment or outright assassination, like a, a Politskivaya or defenestration, it, it kind of raised the question of why, why Russia seeks to poison over other forms of coercion. And then really kind of how that, how that use evolves over time. And I guess that the use evolves in t- over time, not only in terms of the agents and sort of operational strategies employed, but also, I guess, the theatre around it. For many listeners, you know, the most recent experience of poisoning has been of a use which has evolved semi-deniable or even semi-deniable is probably putting it uh, politely, behaviour which is designed to send a, a message. But of course, Having read your paper, what I think is interesting is you also start to you see that over the years, poisoning has also been used in different types of, of way and against different types of, of dissidents. And so I think it's a really useful thing you've done, uh, not to make you blush, but you've, you've gone through and you've, you've reviewed um, allegations and assessed the credibility and then put them together into a large um, archive. I think the cases you end up analysing is, is just shy of 100 unique historical cases which have a reasonable amount of credibility to merit inclusion and then beyond that there's another dozen or so which also came up in your reading and of course I'll save you the having to do the disclaimer anyone that's worked in this area knows that there will always be cases missed out or (laughs) we can have arguments about Um, so before I guess we get into that why don't we talk a little bit about then about the scope of, of poisoning we're going to be dealing with in terms of its type and its motivation and context. Yeah, no, thanks, Brett. Yeah, and um, the, the question of theatre is really interesting because 
I think we see this dualism in the use of poisons. First and foremost, there definitely is theatre around poisoning, and especially when it's discovered. But really, I think we should be thinking about maybe strategic or tactical reasons. So like why the Politburo or Russian decision makers choose that someone should be poisoned for perhaps strategic reasons. And then the tactical advantages of poisons over other forms of coercion. And there's a tension because really, I think if you are found out <laughs> to have done it, you, you choose poisons because they're discrete ways of killing people. Um, so being discovered that you've used them is is kind of a, a bit of a balls up, um, I would argue. And we also have plausible deniability. So even where we don't have concrete evidence uh, that someone has been poisoned, reoccurring patterns tend to be something which we, the media uh, analysts, tend to fixate on. And it adds to a sense that, yes, Russia is embracing implausible deniability. It's an open secret uh, that these um, types of assassination take place. I think Galliotti calls it dark power, a shadowy counterpart to um, soft power. It kind of adds to this sinister element, the fact that no one can be safe, that people are always looking around them. So even if poisons are chosen in the first instance to be discreet, even when they're discovered, they still add a sort of a certain element to this. So I don't think poisons are chosen in the first instance for theatre, but the unintended consequences of being found out um, are, are kind of beneficial for, for a lot of decision makers, I would argue. In terms of scope, I thought the evolution would be really interesting just to see how that's changed over time. So the way I went about it, I basically read everything I could. So that's histories of Soviet and Russian intelligence, post-Soviet political landscapes, autobiographies of operatives and weaponeers where they're available. And that's things like Vilma um, Zivanov's State Secrets, but also Padol Sutoplov's Mangled That Name, but uh, Special Tasks, Oleg Kalugin's autobiography, looking at sort of um, former operatives to see how poison sort of fed into, into that line of intelligence and bolstering that with government documents, news articles, databases. Um, and as you say, yeah, we end up with a data set. So after excluding non-credibly reported sources, a data set of just shy of 100 incidents. Um, I think that lets us look at sort of evolution when we start pairing the chronology of attacks to who's in charge and the leadership styles at the time. Uh, we start seeing that leadership attitudes dominate both in terms of domestic policy, for example, the accommodation towards dissidents, but then assertiveness in foreign policy and foreign operations as well. But I think this historical context work is, is really important, not only because obviously there's naturally going to be path dependencies from previous institutions and capacities to the contemporary era, um, but also I just think it's a really good way of looking at the, the motivations and contexts in which states engage in poison assassination as part of a clandestine activity. So in your uh, paper, we work through the Russian leadership. So we start back uh, with Stalin. As I understand it, the embryonic roots of Soviet poisoning probably expend back beyond that a little bit. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, as far as we can tell, it looks like the, the Soviet poisons programme started under Lenin with the narrative being that basically in 1917, there was an assassination attempt on Lenin's life. Fania Kaplan fired two shots and, uh, and, and wounded him. And at the time, 
bullets were believed to have been poisoned with curare, poisonous resin. And even though those reports were later refuted, Lenin was apparently nonetheless provided with a report on the poison. And this is sort of a seen as sparking an interest. And just a couple of years later, the camera or special room, the chamber, was established under Lenin's own secretariat. So very much sort of within the leadership capabilities before being transferred to the Cheka, the, the Soviet Union secret police and the forerunner of what becomes the KGB at some point in the 1920s. Not sure on the precise date, particularly because the KGB and the laboratory itself undergo a number of reorganisations. And it's possible, in fact, that there is a chemical lab and a biological lab looking at toxins, which kind of merge at this point. Basically, the lab itself, despite being reorganised, despite being sort of shuffled around um, in this portfolio, its mission basically to develop poisons which can't be traced, that basically stays the same throughout its history. Uh, so today, the lab still exists, where sanctions, US sanctions, which are really helpful in uh, trying to pin this down, uh, suggests that this is now under the FSB Special Technology Center, which runs the FSB's Criminalistic Institute. I've been struck by the idea of, of this poison bullet claim being a motivator of interest. Obviously, there was this transition from the First World War. So you had increased interest in biological warfare and chemical warfare. But this program, almost from the outset, seems to have had a distinctive life of its own in relation to the broader military programs. Is that is that right? Yeah. So um, the Russian um, chemical weapon program, for example, I think comes gets formally established in 1925. The poisons program predates this. Obviously, uh, poisons are available throughout history, as we know, and, you know, uh, various attempts to poison Rasputin, for example, you know, feature prominently in narratives of, of, of Russia's history. Uh, but certainly, no, I think the, the idea of poisons as a political weapon, as an intelligence tool, stem from under Lenin um, and in the, the early 1920s, separate from military uses of the chemical or biological weapons. Excellent. So we move into the Stalin era, which is where the, the, your study really takes off in terms of the uptick in cases. So in your paper, for example, I think you list somewhere around 39, maybe slightly more cases that occurred or suspects have occurred during the Stalinist regime that we, we know about. So why don't we start by talking a little bit about assassination, poison and the Stalin regime? Absolutely. So from the revolution, Lenin establishes the Soviet state and it's a state of civil war. There's also the internal civil war between the leadership and the succession of Lenin, most famously between Stalin and Trotsky, although other uh, leaders are available. And we see a, I guess, both an internal and an external front with the Soviet Cheka, or what becomes a KGB, having a very aggressive program both externally to liquidate eventual Trotskyists under Stalin, but also other people who would be a threat to the regime. For example, Russian army officers who had fled the Soviet regime, uh, traitors and the like. But then also under Stalin, what we see is on the internal front, purges the um, increasing paranoia of the Stalinist state, 
the increasing turmoil of the statist approach and trying to centralise the economy, for example. So we see this for the poisons element being particularly notable almost as a subsection of the purges. Purges most famous um, for the expansion of the gulag system and the rounding up and forced labour of millions of ordinary Soviet citizens. But what we also see is the domestic turmoil within the Soviet bureaucracy. We see the infighting, we see um, cases where the paranoia of the age really dominates the, the apparatus as well. In addition to denunciations of people inside the system, it looks like poison was also used to remove discreetly individuals who would be problematic. But then understanding the full scope of this is really hard because it seems like there's quite a lot of autonomy within the Cheka and within some of the Soviet intelligence services. And we have an atmosphere where the Byzantine apparatus combines with personal interests. So even though an individual might be poisoned, understanding whether that's coming from orders from Stalin or from Swife chiefs, for example, is, is quite difficult. We have a number of examples where it looks like individuals are poisoned because of personal interests. So, for example, Beria is accused of having poisoned his rivals. And that's kind of a personal grudge rather than a state interest, I would argue. But we can see cases, for example, where you know within Stalin's family, it appears that Stalin poisoned his own brother-in-law, ostensibly because he was becoming a little bit too involved in critiquing some of the reforms which were going on. Complicating this further as well is the fact that during this time, it appears that the Poisons Lab was particularly active in its development stage. And in the context of mass imprisonments, um, testing on human subjects appears to be the norm. And we can see a number of foreigners, for example, uh, they appear to be slightly more prominent in the reporting because they're foreign and there's foreign press interest being caught up in both the Soviet legal system, but then appearing to be used basically as live test subjects within that system. So separating the strands of what is a political decision, what's a personal decision, what's a routine decision, it's quite hard to disambiguate that just from the external evidence alone. But certainly under Stalin, we do see perhaps the most number of any of any leader, uh, of any Soviet leader to use poisons. And what would you say uh, that come to mind as the kind of iconic examples of uh, assassination within that era? Not necessarily always because they were accurate, but some of the better known ones. I think we almost have too too many options to, to choose from, but a couple of notable ones come to mind. So General Baron Peter Wrangel, he was a white army general and the founder of the effective emigre resistance, the Russia All-Army Union, ROVS. So during his exile, Rovs uh, began to organise and unite the White Guard veterans, sort of uh, effectively to be anti-communist opposition. So 1928, when he was based in Serbia, Wrangel's Batman gained permission for his uh, brother, Inverted Commerce, to stay in the house, although no one, neither the general nor members of the family, had heard about this uh, brother before. General Wrangel is reported to have basically been poisoned and, and spent the best part of 40 nights in excruciating pain. Um, microbacteria was uh, found in the autopsy, which suggests that basically Soviets were looking to minimise opposition leaders there as well. Nadezhda Krupska, Lenin's widow, 
Even though she's largely removed from political life by the 1930s, she's really the only single active and influential leader of the anti-Stalinist opposition at the time. She dies conveniently uh, just before the 18th Party Congress, which is held in March 1939, with symptoms consistent with cyanide poisoning. A couple of other slightly more esoteric ones, Archbishop Bronzer, perhaps relevant to Ukraine today. He is uh, a leading figure within the Ukrainian church and Soviet intelligence seeks to bump him off initially with a car accident. They basically drive a car into his cart, doesn't do the job. He gets rushed off to hospital. And while he's laying in bed, they basically finish him off with uh, an injection of cyanide. So then after this period, we get to the Khrushchev era. Where I assume we see some continuation of what's gone before, but we also see some transition in in the use of, of poison as assassination tool. Yeah, absolutely. So under Khrushchev, we have the famous anti-Stalinist speech, which signals less repression domestically, a greater liberalisation of certain freedoms. But Khrushchev, obviously, uh, we're in a different age now. We're in the nuclear age. We're in the missile age. Basically, the Soviet Union is slightly more secure in its placing. It's won World War II. It's got its military might. It's, it's able to consolidate its own domestic hold as well as its foreign influence. And we see definitely a decline in the number of reported poisons under Khrushchev. So in terms of domestic oppression, dissidents can be better accommodated. But also uh, in terms of foreign operations, we see the Soviet resorting to assassination and kidnapping uh, definitely declining. So the way Khrushchev deals with dissidents, he's a bit more sophisticated than the very early communist bloc. So we, we see the Khrushchev tendency to either to try and intimidate individuals or coerce them into cooperation or at least staying silent. And then where that fails, taking taking individuals out through various means, uh, including poisons. But the, the number and the scope is, is far, far less. And I remember from the, the paper also reading that in this era, you use the term uh, soft poisons. Of course, as you know, doesn't necessarily mean they were without risk uh, to killing people, but certainly agents designed basically to knock people unconscious and those sorts of things also. Is that right? Or have I got that around my neck? Yeah, so um, soft poisons comes from Boris Volodarsky's book, KGB Poisons Factory. And yeah, he, he distinguishes by intent. Poison comes from a dosage, um, largely. But Volodarsky sort of says, you know, skipping over exactly how things are made or what the, how they come to be, you know, chemical poisons, radiological poisons. Deadly poisons are those designed to kill. Soft poisons those designed to incapacitate temporarily or to have sort of a temporary harm to individuals as well. So, yeah, we, we see a number of these incidents. They obviously existed in Stalin time, especially for the kidnapping of dissidents and to bring them back either for interrogation or propaganda purposes. But, yeah, the Cold War is difficult to disambiguate because we see a lot of this kidnapping going on along amongst the Eastern Bloc in general. And often, again, it's hard to disambiguate if, if the East German Stasi, for example, have done this and tried to bring people back across across the border, or whether it's the, the Soviets themselves. But yeah, certainly um, soft poisons are, are used throughout all of these knockout drops. And 
I tend to exclude them largely from my analysis, but that, that's mainly because they're described as being routine uses. So KGB at this point uh, are described as using things like truth serums on a fairly regular basis. But we only have a sporadic reporting of particular incidents. One one of the incidents, I think, is against their own people. So um, I think Wodorowski notes a, a couple of examples where KGB officers who are suspected of uh, being disloyal or wanting to defect, being treated with truth serums themselves. And the way it's done is or was for there to be a, a party thrown for individuals put into a drink. They find themselves to be incredibly talkative. And when they don't remember anything the day after, they're shown the detritus of the party afterwards. And it's hoped that their headache and lack of memory all comes from, you know, the, the cover story of, oh, you were just thrown a party and you got blind drunk rather than you're under suspicion and we basically uh, doped you. So it sounds like then there were likely to be a, a range of agents that were utilised as, as part of this. And, you know, uh, we certainly know that the KGB uh, had a wide range of strategies employed to both you know, embarrass or, or extract information for people. I'm, I'm sure there's been studies looking at the various types of, of agents being used. And if I come across that, I will add that uh, to, the sh- to the show notes uh, as well. Plodding on with our quest through the cornucopia that is Soviet poisoning, we then move to the Brezhnev era. And again, we see continuation and we also see some some shifts. And I wonder if at this point you can give us a partial sense of how by the 1960s the poisoning enterprise was was organised. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing we should notice under Brezhnev was his use of poisons against uh, Ukrainian nationalists, the, the OUN. There's a book out, The Man for Poison Gun by Sergei Ploki. Uh, which covers this in, in quite good detail. But in short, the KGB and uh, Khrushchev go out and kill two Ukrainian nationalist leaders uh, living in West Germany at the time. The KGB operative, uh, Bogdan Stetlinski, has a uh, poison gas gun. It fires, I think, prussic acid. If you breathe it in within a metre, two metres, you basically simulate a heart attack. Although uh, Stetlinski is, is not very happy living in the Soviet Union. His wife is German and she's used to the relative luxury of the German way of life and materialism. And the couple flee to West Germany. It's a fairly dramatic fleeing. They literally make it across the border the day before the uh, Berlin Wall goes up. Um, I think that's entirely coincidental. Dasinski, he hands himself over to authorities and they don't really know what to do with him. So they stick him on trial. <laughs> they stick him on trial for the murder of the Ukrainian nationalist. And it becomes an utter public sensation that not only does the Soviet Union have secret squads, assassination squads, um, but that, you know, they're doing so with sophisticated poisons. And there's a huge media frenzy around this. And it's really, really embarrassing for the KGB. And the reports that meetings were cancelled, protests outside Russian embassies. Really, it becomes very embarrassing for the people who uh, authorised these attacks. And what we see is, as we transition from Khrushchev to Brezhnev, a growing awareness that if you're caught doing this, it can be highly embarrassing. I think Andropov himself is much more in favour of a, a more restrained way of dealing with dissidents domestically. Times have changed. The Soviet Union is a superpower. 
it has its networks across the world. They're not living in the red terror anymore. And that for a modern spy agency, you need to work in a modern modern way. So what we see is a further tightening in the ways in which the KGB use their poisons. So the use of, of prussic acid, uh, hydrogen cyanide, uh, rings a few bells for me, and I've just double-checked, and they, these are indeed bells that should have been rang. Um, if memory serves correctly, uh, hydrogen cyanide was something that was certainly experimented with and fielded to some extent during the First World War. But of course, the big problem with it was was establishing a, a, an appropriate concentration uh, in a battlefield context for it to be uh, effective. It's certainly highly toxic, and of course, of all these things to do with dosage. What's really interesting about the Soviet program here is that they've combined knowledge of a, a chemical they knew to be highly highly toxic with a, a new form of specifically developed delivery system in which they utilise for this. And so I guess part of that scandal, it wasn't just someone dropping arsenic or cyanide into somebody's drink. It revealed clandestine operations occurring within the Soviet Union must be at quite an advanced stage for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, we do see this evolution, the way in which poisons are disseminated. So looking back at the Soviet uses, they, they appear to be like tainted food, you know, putting drops of stuff in, in people's soup or tea or coffee or whatever. And obviously that continues. But yeah, the, the use of the gas gun is much more of an advance on that. Um, we also see the poison, little special pistol um, shaped like a cigarette case in uh, the 50s in the attempt to kill Georgi uh, Okolovich. He was a prominent uh, anti-Soviet activist and he headed uh, the Society of National Unity, which was the anti-communist Russian emigre organization. That's really interesting because Okolovich was due to be killed by an agent called uh, Kolikov, who basically, unknown to the Soviet leadership, he converts to Christianity. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's incredibly conflicted about his mission in uh, in February 1954. Kolikov goes and visits Okolovich in his apartment in Frankfurt and confesses and basically hands himself over to authorities. And that includes the small cigarette case, I think, a model of which you can see in the um, Washington Spy Museum. But that cigarette case was going to fire poisoned darts, poisoned bullets. But we do definitely see the sophistication of these delivery devices evolving and continuing to evolve, including up to the um, the, the poison umbrella, the rice and umbrella pellet used to kill Georgi Markov. So, yeah, absolutely. There's definitely research going on to the toxicity and the different types of agents, poisons going on at this time, as well as ways in which they can be delivered um, clandestinely. So in the broadest of strokes, it seems that the Brezhnev era was characterised by a public embarrassment, which basically encouraged them to step away from these more sophisticated types of attack, which were coming back to sting them publicly. But at the same time, behind the scenes, it's clear that in the period running up to that, one assumes during that, that era, there was continued investment into developing new poisons and new ways of applying these poisons. So we move then from the Brezhnev era to that of Putin. And this then takes us to about 1999. And why then don't we, we start a little bit with a bit of context of that transition? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brett. 
one thing we should definitely note is uh, research and development on poisons are likely to have continued sort of regardless of who's in charge and development further refinement of uh, dissemination techniques are likely to have continued to this day but what's really interesting as well is we have this tension which is as we try to develop poisons which are more unique which are harder to detect and trace back the tension then becomes that particular agent becomes more unique to those individuals and there's a certain irony here which is that if we look at the Markov case for example at the time we know that British intelligence were very much concerned that actually yes this is probably a state-based hit but actually because it's ricin a well-trained or well-prepared terrorist organization could also have done this so almost by becoming more sophisticated um, you almost decrease the likelihood that it could be someone else so going back to the transition basically from from the excesses of a stalinist period we see this ever tightening up uh, within the soviet union so as the leadership matures, as it goes away from one man rule and has collective leadership. That leadership becomes more and more conservative over time, both in terms of well, in terms of its foreign policy and sort of where its relations with Europe and the US lie. Obviously, the Cold War reignites in certain parts of Africa, for example. But certainly we see this conservative outflow coming through. We do have a couple of cases, for example, under Yeltsin where some of that institutional freedom appears to have come to the fore with the FSB using some of its autonomy to perhaps reverse some of the changes or, or to sort of enact its own sort of parochial plans. And, and certainly uh, in the turmoil of the 90s, a case where some uh, Soviet chemical weapon stocks are sold on the black market. So certainly you know, the Soviet control mechanism tends, has broken down sort of by then, but certainly by work on my lab continues. That period under Yeltsin, which is increasingly fascist, is, you know, Putin being brought in by the political leadership, one, for stability, uh, but two, you know, to really protect some of the kleptocratic tendencies which have emerged in the new Russia. It's interesting when we when we start to compile the list of people who have been poisoned under uh, Putin's tenure or that under Medvedev's, the numbers jump. They absolutely jump and they, they, they jump an astonishing amount to the point where it's now, you know, under, under Putin's 20 odd years, it's now comparable to the 80 odd years of reported instances under the communist leadership. And one thing which I think we see is the, the re-emergence of regime interests. There are lots of ways of typifying or sort of classifying Russia under Putin, increasing authoritarian, um, hybrid, you know, managed democracies, whatever you want to say. But one thing we've definitely seen is the emergence of kleptocratic Russia, which is bureaucrats and businessmen basically capturing state resources to enrich themselves. And the regime is basically built around the consensus that this is OK within certain limits. As long as you kind of stay out of politics, as Putin once said, or as long as you're not endangering the strategic interests of a country, this gives us stability in the short term. And this is acceptable to take us out of the contrasting turmoil of the 1990s.
think another really is interesting thing to note under Putin has been the way in which authority to conduct state assassinations appears to have evolved. So as we discussed, the Soviets basically entered collective leadership on decisions to kill people. And this stays all the way through from Brezhnev all the way to the final days of the Soviet Union under Gorbachev. When Yeltsin comes in, well, he creates a moratorium on the death penalty and effectively makes that illegal. Previously, the Soviets had a principle of applying Soviet laws outside of the motherland. So even if someone was uh, sentenced to death, there was a process. They were sentenced in absentia and then the KGB would effectively carry out that sentence abroad. And that's the legal basis for its foreign assassinations. The death penalty was abolished under Putin, but it's been seemingly reinstated under Putin. The difference being that uh, reporting suggests that the decisions to assassinate individuals now come under sole presidential authority rather than collective decision making. But we also have unclear channels of delegation. It's often assumed that authority would be devolved to um, operational theatres. And really, this was designed in terms of the pursuit of, I think, terrorists who kill Russian diplomats, I think, in Syria, possibly Iraq. But it was designed to go after individuals who, who targeted Russian assets in military theatres. But the implications for state based assassinations uh, are significant because you have abandoned collective leadership. You may or may not have delegated authority to kill individuals. And we also have the essence that actually people can be killed as sort of uh, perhaps on a tacit understanding that this is what the boss wants. So we've had a change in the legal structure and diversity as well in, in, in uh, state authorities who have expertise in poisons. Uh, and this might be another reason why we're seeing a growth in, in the reported instances. Although we're now living in the information age, so perhaps the other factor there is actually just the sheer availability of news uh, has, has helped skew the numbers to, to increase those recorded under Putin. And, you know, looking over what you have here in the report, there's a variety of, of agents used. One of the things that comes to the forefront, of course, is the use of heavy metals in poisoning. Um, of course, the most the famous case, I guess you could briefly review for us now before we get to the more recent cases that the European audience will be most familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the most infamous probably being the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko. Litvinenko was an FSB officer looking at anti-corruption. And he has an interesting story in that effectively um, he ends up fleeing Russia. Uh, he becomes a, after a reported incident where he um, helps Boris Berezovsky, former, well, then oligarch, to survive an assassination attempt. He becomes quite close with him. And he uncovers corruption within Russia. And according to his work, he, he went and told Putin directly, who was then head of the FSB, about the corrupt practices which were going on and that he should be put a stop to. Putin doesn't do any of that. In fact, you know, the kleptocratic system flourishes under Putin. But Litvinenko ends up sort of 
concerned for his own life and ends up fleeing Russia and ends up being based in the UK. We all know about Litvinenko because we've probably all seen the um, horrific photos of him on his deathbed. But he was basically poisoned with polonium-210, which is a radioactive substance. It's an alpha emitter, so it can be stopped, the radiation can be stopped by skin or something as thin as paper. But really, it, it does horrific damages if, you're, if it's swallowed internally. And he consumed it as part of a cup of tea. We see throughout the Soviet period and uh, Russian period that defectors are consistently targeted with poisons especially, and it adds to this dark power, which we, we talked about. But then again, it hints at that tension about discretion and whether or not, for example, poisonings are meant to be discovered. I think the, the best analogy is that poisons should be like a well-fitted suit. They should be measured for the size and proportions of the person you're trying to kill. And Litvinenko was a very fit individual. He ran, he swam, he was peak physical fitness. And there's questions whether or not he was meant to have suffered for as long as he did. Especially it, it took days for British authorities to realise radiation poisoning. A number of other more likely explanations were considered first and foremost. But we see perhaps the most prominent example in the UK, at least, with Litvinenko's poisoning there. And it marks perhaps or it's indicative of the re-emergence of poisons under Putin. Thanks. And of course, the next generation of poisons which gained infamy in the past five or six years has been the use of agents from the so-called Novichok class of, of agents, which have a long history in the Soviet Union. These agents were, were well known within the non-proliferation community, certainly before they came to public awareness um, in the Skripal assassination attempt. And this then is interesting that this was a new, a new, even though there's probably historical examples of, of Novichok agent use before these incidents, in the public imagination, this represents a new kind of wave or era of Russian poisoning campaigns. Yeah, again, it's really interesting. Um, and Bellingcat have done some excellent research on this. Um, but it's, it's interesting. So uh, after Litvinenko's case, for example, which prompted a public inquiry in the United Kingdom, a widespread investigation, the downturning of um, UK weapon ties. Despite the sort of technical success of poisoning Litvinenko, there's a definite feeling of blowback and unintended consequences from this. Following arguably the, the strategic failure of the poisoning of Litvinenko, um, we see the uh, Russian military intelligence, uh, GRU, coming out and being um, implicated in the use of uh, Novichok chemical agents in a way which I certainly hadn't seen in the database. This is, for me, the first uh, confirmed use of Novichok by uh, in a, an assassination role. And it hints that within the terms of inter-service rivalry, potentially that the Russian the FSB used to kill Litvinenko was deemed a failure. And part of that portfolio or mission or element was transferred to the GIU. Obviously, that's incredibly speculative and it's just based on a, a rough notion of inter-service rivalry. But certainly the GIU programme is based on the previous Foliant programme 
And as you say, we've known about that certainly since the 90s and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Anyone interested, Mironov, there's an excellent book, uh, State Secrets, on that. But basically, it describes the development of the Foliant program and what became known as Novichok or Newcomer Organophosphate uh, Chemical Weapons, but really designed around the brief that they should evade NATO countermeasures, detection measures and PPE, but then also be uh, able to evade international inspections should a new CWC inspection regime come about. So it looks as if, superficially at least, that military intelligence have taken an old military programme and have repurposed it for an assassination role. And the Bellingcat revelations about military unit 29155 and others really, uh, and to, to, to that unit and to a spate of poisonings and, and other misdeeds is really fascinating because, again, that points to another strand of Russian belligerence, sort of certainly in Europe, one which occupies a grey space between open conflict and, and others. And of course, you know, this, the Salisbury affair requires an episode in of itself. And I've hopefully got some additional guests to come on and, and speak to that. If memory serves me correctly, what I remember that was interesting, if you were unfortunate enough to be watching Russia Today during the initial coverage of the Skripal attack, was that former agents who were implicated in earlier poisonings in the UK were commenting upon that case as well, which was um, certainly interesting from a theatrics perspective. So I guess this leads me to a couple of more general questions to close us out on. I know you've done work on other nation states which have employed poisons as a, as a norm. And reading your paper, you seem to point to a wide range of historical factors that have led poisoning to become if not central aspect, but certainly a well-established aspect of, of clandestine operations by the Russian security services. So why don't you speak a little bit then, I guess, to what appeal these weapons tend to have? Is it based on the character of the weapons or is it more to do with the historical accident of these things getting institutional inertia within certain states? That's a really interesting question. I think at the end of the day, chemical, biological weapons are tools to be used by militaries, well, not to be used by militaries, hopefully. But yeah, CBW are are tools and the intelligence apparatus has a similar approach in that chemical weapons, biological weapons, poisons specifically, where rather than a large battlefield effect or wide area effect, poisons will tend to have a a localised effect, which makes them useful for individuals. And there are a number of tactical advantages over other means of coercion, whether that's being low key and hopefully allowing individual deaths to be overlooked by authorities, whether that's allowing uh, an operative time to escape as the effects of the poison take place. Certainly there are a number of reasons why they have continued appeal, but there's a tension there because the more often you use it, um, or even the perception that you're using it more, gives greater awareness to what you're doing. And again, on one hand, if you are looking for total discretion, you need to vary your tactics in how you do it. But then it also adds to this dark power. And if you are in an authoritarian state and you're looking to limit the vocalisation of dissent, then keeping, keeping certain elements of your population in 
fear or suspicion uh, that you could be poisoned also have a utility. So again, you have this, this tension where, yes, there's theatre where incidents are exposed, but the underlying fear that people could be targeted anywhere, anytime through something surreptitious is also useful for the state. Well, thank you very much for that. I feel I've got a greater sense of the the history of, of that aspect of the Soviet and Russian programmes. And without a doubt, I'll share a link to your paper and some other works that I know are good on this in the in the show notes. So what are you working on at the moment? I know that you just published another paper on another state dealing with, with assassination. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, I've just published a paper on Chile's chemical biological weapons programme, most famous uh, under the moniker Project Andrea, but it's a fairly obscure programme, one which isn't well understood in English language sources. But for those of you not aware, Chile, under uh, the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, also considered chemical biological weapons use. And that's fairly interesting because that starts off as an intelligence program. It's fairly small. It, it literally takes place in the initial stages in, the, in a garden shed. And it takes place against a wider sense of oppression and state terror. But what begins perhaps with military or strategic ambitions, basically is only ever used in small ways and arguably isn't even a capability in its own right. But again, it, it, it we ask a question of why poisons over other means of coercion. And this one's really interesting because Chile was in a, in a period of state terror. It was rounding people up and disappearing them all over the country. And to choose a small sovereign-based programme to deal with some dissidents is quite peculiar, um, especially when uh, the most famous or infamous example of that is the assassination of Orlando Letlier in Washington, D.C. with a car bomb. That notion of discretion um, and being overlooked is, is, is hardly there. And yeah, on, on the Chile paper, just a, a shout out to Glenn Cross and Seth Carris, amongst others, who were really helpful in peer reviewing or informally reviewing the uh, draft before it went out. So thanks. Oh, brilliant. Uh, as you know, uh, Glenn Cross came on the show recently, did a, did a stellar job and has always been a keen contributor to the work we do here. And um, so same for Seth. Hasn't been on the show yet, but hopefully if he's listening to this, <laughs> this will be a very unsubtle nudge to try and get him on here at some point in the future. Fantastic. And uh, thank you very much. And if people want to keep track of your, your work and publications, are you on the, any of the social medias? Are you also slowly transitioning to, to other uh, <laughs> online places or have you managed to escape that uh, addiction so far? Yeah, I have a, a tiny, tiny following on uh, X or formerly Twitter. I think it's uh, Carl Dewey one. But otherwise, yes, largely, largely, largely keeping quiet off the uh, social media profiles. Good for you. Well, thank you so much for that. I've got a lot out of that discussion today. And thanks for making the time to speak to us. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll speak to you soon, no doubt. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me on.